Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to bring in Cole Smead. He's the president and portfolio manager of Smead Capital Management. Cole, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts um, from a value investor perspective of this market right here. How are you guys positioned here as we finish up the first quarter of 2022? Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, this is just quite a fun world to be living in, to be downright honest, uh, for investors like us, where, as you pointed out, the dynamics of the oil market have people really caught off guard and, and on the wrong foot. And at the same time, we have Warren Buffett out there uh, being as aggressive as he ever is in an open market uh, common stock uh, investment decision like he's doing with Occidental Petroleum. And, and we feel great about that because uh, we have lower cost basis and we agree with everything he's seeing. I think the big difference, though, is two years ago, investors had to look directly into the teeth of hell in that business and bet that things weren't going to be as bad, but you didn't have a lot of information to know that. Versus today, Buffett's looking at, um, in effect, the return on equity of the business exploding, the capital structure being far better. In other words, the probability of success is higher. Therefore, he's willing to pay a lot higher prices, and the oddity is investors are not willing to follow him. How are you thinking about sort of the value trade in the place? in the face of rates moving higher? And, and is there sort of that correlation or causation factor? It's a great question, Taylor. Um, just so you know, I, I think about this is this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm 38 years old. Um, there's very few people that are 38 that actually believe that value investing works or that you know buying something cheap enough because the economics are so good are, are of any merit. Um, they all want to think about it or talk about it, but they all want to go do what the rest of the market participants want to do. So to your point about higher rates. There's no question whether higher rates will hurt stocks. The question is who benefits from it. Okay? Um, in other words, the average stock will get hurt by that. Multiples will contract. But I would argue that the oddity of the last 10 years versus the next 10 is that as the cost of capital rises, capital-intensive businesses will succeed because, yes, their cost of capital is rising, but fewer will enter those types of businesses versus if you're in a capital-light industry or an asset-light business, People can enter all the while the cost of capital rises. So the question is, you know, to save margins, you want a lack of competition. And we think there's just a huge price disparity between what the opportunity is and what people are paying in the open market. And we own things like malls, home builders outside the energy. Our, our biggest sector in either of our international fund or our U.S. fund is energy um, at over 20% in both of those. So we're incredibly bullish on energy. But like I said, cyclical assets that are terribly mispriced um, are completely under the service of the S&P or as you go abroad. All right. I'm glad you brought up energy because it has had a very good run here. And I guess the question for a lot of folks who maybe weren't there early, is yeah. there room left in this trade? Yeah. So I'll, let's go back to Occidental, cause, and it's so timely with, with Buffett. So I, I, I would argue to your listeners that Occidental is producing about roughly 50% return on equity okay, wow. as we speak. Now, if you think about it, I mean, that's crazy. That's tech-like ROE. Now, some of that's just the accounting, Paul, just so you know. They wrote down the goodwill from Anadarko, okay, 
which means the book equity is lower than it really should be because now that we know we have hundred dollar oil, that book equity that got written down is you know probably shouldn't have. But what that's done, it's made the return on equity go a lot higher. So if you went out and said, hey, let's go look at companies that are producing fifty percent return on equity and trade at two times book, we well, just won't find them, um, except in the energy business, right? So like like Graham said, you know Ben Graham, his mentor said, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Coca-Cola was producing the same return on equity in 88 when Buffett stepped into it and did that for about 10 years to follow that. And what ends up happening is you compound book at that level for five, seven, or even 10 years. You make so much book value per share, you don't really care what the book multiple is in the end because the book grows so much. And that's exactly what's going on Oxy. If they can buy back shares, that just enhances. They've laid out most of their capital trends are going to happen via buybacks. That just enhances that book value per share idea. Are your clients so asking you at all about the, the bad word here, the R word, recession, and sort of how you think about some of these big value performers in the face of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, uh, Taylor. Um, so you got to remember the Fed is augmenting the curve still, right? That, you know, that we have not stopped the buying on the long end. Um, so they're still subduing the long end. So the question I, I would be asking is, if the Fed's not present in a year, what does the long end look like? Versus they're completely controlling the short end, and we know that that's got to go up. And the question is, does it got to go up to two and a half? Or is Larry Summers right, and we're going to four? And that's the only way to quell this. And then the question is, where does the market end up taking the 10-year um, on the long end of the curve. So we, we don't see it as a recession because if you look at prior instances of like oil spiking back in 08, percentage of wallet that was going towards gas was way higher then at those prices than we are now. At, at the numbers we looked at, I think this came from Fundstrat, 4.7% back then a percentage of wallet. It's at three today at these current prices. We'd have to go to $150, $200 prices to really get back to a crimp like that. And we're a moonshot, according to the Biden administration, you know, away from that as they release reserves today. So, um, so we don't look at it like that. Also, if you look at debt service ratios, they've never been lower since 1980. So the American household, with their savings rates coming off the pandemic and their low debt service ratios, we've never been so ready to spend our way directly into inflation. Right. inflation. Hey, Cole, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your perspective. Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager of Smead Capital Management. Looking at the GLCO function on the Bloomberg Terminal, it gets all the global commodities. Looking at the metals in particular, <clears throat> I'm seeing year-to-date gains of 10, 20, 30 percent. Even, boy, you look at nickel up 56 percent year-to-date. Where do we go from here? Obviously reflecting a lot of the geopolitical tensions uh, in Europe. Let's bring in Everett Millman, Chief Market Analyst for Gainesville Coins. Everett, what's kind of your big call here for metals here? You highlighted the last time you were on that this was going to be an issue. We're going to get some supply chain some supply issues coming out of russia where do we go from here absolutely paul um and i believe the biden administration invoking the defense production act is not just a significant move with respect to russia um it goes beyond that many of the sources for some of those uh, ev metals those battery metals that we're talking about like nickel and lithium and cobalt they are mined in uh, not particularly well-regulated jurisdictions um, <laughs> and also not particularly friendly trading partners for the United States. So, for instance, uh, about two-thirds of global cobalt is mined in the Demo Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, you have a major nickel operation in Indonesia, and the Indonesian government has be 
been become increasingly protectionist with its nickel and copper exports. And then, of course, uh, Beijing is on both sides of, of dominating consumption and production of a lot of those key commodities. So really, this is a move to bring those supply chains to the United States, to North America, a bit more secure. But of course, I believe this process is going to be fairly gradual and constrained. Um, it takes many years for, for these types of mines to become operational. Uh, that doesn't even mention the infrastructure needed for charging stations. And the DPA doesn't clear away any potential regulations on the mining. Um, so the Biden administration has been fairly careful to keep environmental concerns at top of mind. Right. Um, all of this means that it will not be quite so easy to ramp up production of That of sort of brings me brain. to my next question. When we think about domestic production of some of these raw materials, is it clean? We've spoken with a lot of companies that say, look, we can do it cleaner. But I think there is maybe some concern around that. Right. A major concern, um, not just for ESG reasons, but from a, a feasibility standpoint. And that's one of the main things that invoking the DPA does is it at least gets the ball rolling on some feasibility studies to see what is the co- what kind of costs can we expect, what kind of profitability can we expect, because as you mentioned, if uh, environmental regulations are ignored, as they are in some jurisdictions, then um, you can mine these metals much more cheaply. But that is obviously not going to fly in the United States. What are you telling your clients about metals just broadly defined? Is there still room to grow or do we kind of, it, it, it's had its run? Uh, it's a fascinating question because although I, I think we do still have room to grow, uh, the high level of volatility we've seen across the metal space, you mentioned nickel, that's probably the biggest example. But even with gold, we've seen quite a bit of intraday volatility going back and forth. Um, that is leading to some liquidity issues. Uh, it's pushing some traders and participants out of the market. And now we do have the, the fresh set of lockdowns in Shanghai. So that could potentially curb some of the demand for copper and gold and these other metals. It just right now it's a big, big tale of uh, uncertainty that's hanging over this market. How does this sort of help relieve some of the volatility within this market, if at all? It may not. I think that it's going to take um, many months for this to play out, uh, especially given the geopolitical conflicts that are continuing to rage. I think volatility and um, some impaired liquidity is probably what we should expect for the next, uh, at least the next quarter uh, across the commodity space. All right, Everett, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting uh, your perspective on all things metals. All right, let's talk about, we'll continue our discussion of energy, this time focusing on security of the energy grid. To do that, we welcome Daniel McGann, CEO of American Superconductor. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys at American Semiconductor uh, provide wind turbine electronic controls and systems. That gives you a good sense of kind of how our system is kind of wired here in terms of our electrical grid here. How secure or how insecure, from your perspective, is the electric grid in the United States? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, at American Superconductor, we focus not only on wind, but on resiliency of the grid. And what we're seeing is this is a, a challenge that's going to continue to exacerbate over the coming years. Uh, the types of things that we're going to rely upon the grid for, um, from you know powering different neighborhoods with, with the change in how people are working and working from home, to the electrification of transportation and specifically vehicles. And the grid's going to be uh, asked to do a lot of things it's not designed to do. Um, so we've developed some solutions to help uh, 
the, the system providers be able to, in a cost advantageous way, be able to provide more capacity and more resiliency to the overall system. Talk to us about sort of that transition and the way that renewables can play a part. A lot of people, of course, want the transition to renewables, but they just want it in a reliable way. How are you thinking about the role that renewables can play in that? Well, we want to make sure that renewables can be um, cost competitive. Um, we work across the globe in, in wind and also in large-scale solar. Um, a lot of what our most recent focus has been on is on hardening the grid, allowing the grid to be able to do more. Um, our, we separate our business into a wind uh, segment and a grid segment. Uh, our grid segment now is at record levels uh, in the history of the company. We actually grew the grid segment by more than 50% against a year-ago quarter. So we see that, you know, the the renewables in many ways and the electric vehicles are going to drive dramatic changes to the grid to bring it, be able to bring this power to market uh, to, to where it's needed, when it's needed. Um, and one of the solutions that uh, we recently made some news around is our resilient electric grid solution. I actually, Taylor, did read a book. It was a recommendation from Keith Grossman simply oh, called nice. The Grid. Ah. And it's a history of mm. kind of electrification of the United States and kind of where we are. So if you want to learn about uh, the electric grid in the United States, and it is a fascinating development story, uh, I recommend that. Um, Daniel, you know, we had a guest on from the petroleum industry just earlier today, and she's making a pretty strong argument, not surprisingly, given her from, you know, the groups that she represents, that there is still a need for oil and gas in this country. It can't just all be renewables, and we're seeing that now with the price of energy, given some of the geopolitical concerns. How do you think that f think about the future of, you know, kind of just energy development? Does, is nuclear, does that have a role? Uh, fossil fuels, where do they fit in? And then, of, of course, re renewables. How do you think about that? I think there's a diverse need for energy sources. And you can see, um, you know, the world changes can change pretty dramatically. Um, you know, not too many years ago, we were talking about a move to natural gas, um, you know, and, and now Europe's waking up realizing that, uh, you know, they have their challenges with, with supply from Russia, given everything that's going on over there. So I think as long as the world keeps moving towards cleaner sources and creating a network that can allow, you know, green power to move as easy as uh, other types of power, that I think net-net uh, the consumer is at an advantage and, and the, the, you know, the planet and the climate are uh, taken better care of. How do you think with renewables, some of the big question has been the storage of that. Are you thinking about how to better store renewables so that when we need it, we have it? I think that that's, a, that's certainly, a, a, I'll say, a, maybe a mid to longer term problem. Where we've focused a lot on is, is, is there's need for kind of instantaneous manage of power within the grid because of these disparate sources, because we're asking the distribution grid to do more and more. So a lot of our solutions are really trying to deal at kind of the millisecond, microsecond uh, management of voltage, current, or some combination thereof in different parts of the grid, uh, be it trying to bring more uh, rooftop solar onto a grid using the existing system, 
uh, be it trying to interconnect nodes on the network, these uh, transmission distribution substations, to allow uh, the grid to untrap existing capacity that's already there. Uh, we looked at certain cities where we could double to quadruple the level of resiliency in the urban core by turning the distribution system into a true network where where every point on the, the grid talks to every other point electrically. Uh, today, the distribution grid, it's kind of like an aqueduct to your home. You know, the, if you think of power as water, everything rolls in that direction to you. And once you get into the last mile or so, there's no way really to be able to move power to other parts of the grid. So we've developed this thing called Brazilian Electric Grid that we uh, just lit up our first installation with the city of Chicago in the summer, which enables the interconnection right. of these uh, existing assets in a very uh, new and unique way. Right. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You know, we're talking about energy here today. That includes the, cyber, the security of our energy grid as well. Daniel McGann, CEO of American uh, Superconductor. That's a NASDAQ traded stock. AMSC is the symbol for that one. I want to get to our next guest right now, Kevin Kelly. Good Irish name. Kevin Kelly, CEO and founder of Kelly ETFs, joins us. Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time here because I just went over a story about mortgage rates really starting to tick up. Um, and I'm wondering if this is kind of the first, you know, break maybe in what's been a very strong commercial and residential real estate market, particularly on the residential side over the last couple of years. What's your view of the residential real estate market? Well, I'm glad we're talking about mortgage rates and its impact on uh, the the overall housing market because the problem we're having now is that there's very limited inventory. So that's led to prices going up. And with mortgage rates going up, it's going to lead to less inventory because people that have purchased homes or refinanced homes last year are going to stay in their homes for longer because they won't want to give that interest rate up. And so it's going to further exacerbate the housing inventory shortage we already have. So it's going to really reverberate through markets. And I think especially when we're talking about inflation, it's on top of everybody's mind. This leads to higher structural inflation. And the Fed is very conscientious about it. I mean, you've seen the San Francisco Fed even talk about how these persistent increases in asking rents because of the low, the low housing inventory is actually feeding into uh, the rent component in the consumer price indexes. How do you think about when you think about inflation and some of the impacts on the equity markets, the power of dividend growers, where at least you're getting some inflation protection via a dividend? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to bring up because you want to be positioned with companies that have pricing power. And so when I look at that, they have to have unique business models that will be impervious to the inflationary shocks that are seeing bouts and fits that, that are happening across the board, especially with oil. And so a lot of dividend companies and in income companies have proven their, the sustainability of their models over time. And so that's why investors can get really comfortable even in some residential publicly traded REITs that are out there because of the structural inflation that we're seeing and rents are only for a year. So then they can reset higher. So just take, for example, apartments, right? Apartments had a really tough time in 2021, especially in the coastal markets. 
And we've now seen them completely rebound. And so they've seen about 15% rent increases from their 2021 levels, which were impacted from the pandemic. And so when you're thinking about income and trying to generate it, you want to go to those companies that are, uh, that's a key part of their business model and objective is to generate income. All right, let's stick with the residential real estate. I got to admit, I don't get it. Housing prices are just ripping through the roof. And I was a recent seller, so I benefited from that. People are telling me that rents are going crazy, and they certainly are here in New York City. Where, if, if, if those markets are up, what markets are down? There's, there aren't more people that need to be housed in the United States. So where is the other side of that trade? Yeah, the other side of that trade uh, started to happen in 2010, where we decided to build less. And you've had real estate is very local. As you know, you just sold, right? And so you're focused on your local market. Well, what happens is, is you have a lot of state and local uh, municipalities that have zoning restrictions, and it's the ultimate NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard. I don't want this big residential development going here. I don't want, you know, I don't want zoning to be this and that. So since 2010, we've actually seen 28% fewer total housing units being produced in household formation. So what is the driver behind that? Millennials, right? Millennials got hurt in the last bust. And so they were living with their parents. They were trying to save money. It was a tough economy. Now they're coming out and forming a lot more households. And we have fewer, almost a third fewer housing units available. So it's just simple supply and demand. You know, so, I am so sick of millennials getting blamed for everything. Kevin, I was getting <laughs> blamed because I wasn't forming households. I was the one not doing it. Now no. we're all doing it. And right. now we're the cause of all the supply chain issues. It's unbelievable. Right. When right. can we well, blame Gen Z for something? Yeah, so Taylor, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm been an older millennial myself, right? And so I bought my first house at the age of 36. Mm-hmm. And so... Your fault. Yeah, it, yeah, it's totally my fault, right? Um, we can blame Gen Z for the for the last mortgage, or, or sorry, we can blame the we can blame the older generations for the last mortgage crisis. So that's how we defer and deflect as millennials because <laughs> we had to go into the job market and it was a tough time for us uh, when we were trying to do our household formations because look at all the costs that went up. Think about what people have to spend money on every day. Education, education's gone through the roof, mm-hmm. right? So we're paying more in education costs, we're paying more in, in energy costs, we're paying more in housing costs. What generations are, are to blame for that? I'll leave that up to you guys. All right, I think I know where this is coming. Can coming I blame back. yours? Yeah, you may. Paul, it's you your may. fault. Yep, I'm in the tail, <laughs> tail end, literally the last year or two of the baby boomers. But Kevin, he gets points for explaining to me this housing cost issue. I hadn't, nice. I haven't gotten that. So well, we had well, well, supply well. over the last uh, 10, 12 years going down. And then you had some demand spike here as the millennials get out of the basement. So Kevin Kelly, good job there. CEO and founder of Kelly ETFs. Uh, talking just about the rental market, the real estate market, way, way hot, uh, even during the whole pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.